evening. We'll be reading Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel. But they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we pray for your wisdom and insight, for the light of spiritual knowledge that you shed on the world through your spirit, through the revelation of your Son, that our minds would be enlightened, that our hearts would be set aflame, that we may serve you as your sons and daughter, daughters through the blood of Christ. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever been reading through an Old Testament book and you're kind of going through and having trouble thinking, what exactly does this have to do with me? This is just a historical event. This is something that happened in the past. How can this have any relevance to what is happening to me right now? It's just facts and figures about things that happened. How can that be spiritually enlightening for me more than reading any other history book? The disciples also had trouble reading scriptures, and Jesus opened them up to them. On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, after Christ had died and rose up again, the disciples are returning home and Jesus goes to them and talks to them and says, what's going on? And not perceiving who he is, they say, are you the only person in Jerusalem that has no idea what's been going on the last few days? And Jesus responds in verses 25 and following, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all, the pro all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All scripture, this is speaking of scripture and speaking of the Old Testament, all scripture is God-breathed. God's special revelation from himself to us. And it ultimately, in its context, as part of the whole, points us to Christ. Even our sacraments, even baptism, and the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate, ultimately point us to Christ. All of these different things pointing us to Jesus Christ. And the, what we're reading, what we're reading right now, what we've just read, is history. They are events that happened. 
But God shows his sovereign revelation by working his truth into history. Because he is a sovereign Lord who ordains the happenings of this world. He divinely ordained events to reflect his promise of salvation that would come through Christ. Here we see two huge signposts that point us to Christ. The Passover and the manna in the wilderness. And these things are closely connected because the Passover was that that moment of salvation when God delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt, right? The angel of, of death passed over the sons of Israel. And after it slew the firstborn of e the firstborn, all the firstborn sons of Egypt, the Egyptians said, okay, take these goods, take these riches, take these provisions and get out. God delivered them. And then after they were on their way, God sent them manna to feed them on their way. And so these two acts of provision, these two acts of God that provided for them and saved them, gave, gave them salvation, are closely connected. And so they're supposed to preserve that in their celebration. Every year they celebrate the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. They celebrate Passover, and immediately after, they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's a full week. There's no leaven. You're not allowed to eat any leaven. If you eat any leaven, you are cut off from the people of Israel. And so they commemorate this, these signs that always point back, looking at this great salvation that they had, and they're closely connected. Passover, the actual original Passover that happened, and manna, closely connected signs of God's provision. It's interesting also to note that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was established before God ever gave them manna, just showing how thoroughly God ordained these events. And these are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. They point us forward and backward, because when they are established, they are explicitly told you were to do this so that your son, when your sons ask you, why do we celebrate this Passover? Why do we celebrate this Feast of Unleavened Bread? Why do we do these things? So that you can tell them that our God delivered us. Our God saved us out of the hand of Egypt, out of the bonds of slavery by his mighty hand. It points them back to salvation, points them back, points them back. But it also points them forward. There are New Testament texts that attest to Christ as our Passover lamb. New Testament texts that point us to Christ being our bread from heaven. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are leavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He is what the Passover has always been about. And then in John 6, the people bring up a sign, like a, we want a sign from you, like God gave our fathers a sign, the man in the wilderness, give us a sign. And Jesus responds to them, I am the bread of life. Those 
things that happened, those true historical events that happened and provided salvation for Israel, were God's sovereign revelation throughout history pointing to what ultimate salvation would really come in Jesus Christ. They are fulfilled in Christ, and because they are fulfilled in Christ, we no longer practice the Passover. We no longer have the Feast of Unleavened Bread because Christ is the Passover Lamb. He is the bread of heaven. But our sign, as last week we talked about baptism pointing us to Christ, the same as uh, back to Christ, the same as circumcision pointed forward to Christ, so to the Lord's Supper points us back to Christ and his sacrifice and also forward to his return. Now with these things in focus and uh, with this in mind, let's walk through the passage bit by bit. We started in verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, and we'll just pause right there, they have just been miraculously say, uh, uh, provided passage through the Jordan. God stopped the river and they crossed through on dry ground. And this is before they're going to go through their conquest of Canaan. This is the place where God rolled away their reproach, as he just said in the previous passage. This is the place where the men of Israel received that sign and seal of circumcision. And so we have this significant location where the first sign of the covenant has been reestablished. This entire generation has known nothing of the signs and seals of God. None of them had been circumcised. And it's significant to know that none of them were circumcised because it was the law of God in Exodus chapter 12, verse 48, that no uncircumcised person should eat of the You know what that tells us is that for the past 39 years, they also have not been celebrating the Passover in the wilderness. And so in the next phrase we read, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. This is the first time that these people, these people of Israel, have been able to partake of this. The first Passover was in Egypt. Their parents' generation got to see the first, the real Passover, where the, they took a spotless lamb, a perfect lamb, and they killed it and put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts, on the lintels. And when God sent his angel over Egypt, he passed over them, seeing the blood of the spotless lamb shed for them, that being a shadow of Christ and his work for us. And then a year later, at Sinai, that same generation looks back on that deliverance and they celebrate the first celebration of Passover. But for the remaining 39 years in the wilderness, they were not able to do so. They did not obey God's command to celebrate the Passover. And so this is a very significant event. It's curious to see this 
hugely significant historical event, multiple hugely significant historical events compacted into two or uh, to, to several tiny verses amidst this in this story. But here it is. And now the people of Israel are connected to that past salvation that God provided for them in the previous generation. In partaking of that Passover, they get to see the story played out. They get to be reminded of the life that was preserved in God's salvation. They're reminded of the freedom that was given when God took them out of Egypt. They're able to understand their current estate, which would not be possible Without that Passover, they would either be dead or enslaved. We just read 1 Corinthians 5-7, which shows explicitly that Christ is our Passover lamb. And there's numerous times in uh, all throughout the book of Revelation where we see the primary image of Christ being the lamb that was slain for us. That first spotless lamb in Egypt, its blood guarded the firstborns of Israel from that angel of destruction. And it ultimately resulted in their freedom from slavery. But this spotless lamb of Jesus Christ, his blood was shed for us so that the eternal judgment the almighty and holy God would pass over us. He would look on us and see the blood of Christ has already been shed. The debt of blood has been paid that we may be passed over like the sons of Israel, ultimately resulting in our freedom from slavery to sin. Now, in the Passover, subsequent lambs pointed back to that event. But they also pointed forward to Christ. A bloody sign, a sign of death that signified the blood that would be shed for us on the cross. Christ, having fulfilled this, We no longer look forward to another sacrifice. We don't look forward to more blood, and we do not shed more blood in the sign. Rather, in the Lord's Supper, we have a cup of wine, which points us back to the blood that was once shed, no longer to be shed anymore. It was a sacrifice once shed done and completed because the previous sacrifices no sin has ever been expelled by the sacrifices of, of an animal that's what hebrews tells us but by one sacrifice of the holy son of god all sin may be laid on christ to those who trust in him there's no need for more shed blood or more fear the remembrance of that wine the the, the wine points us back to that blood But it also points us forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. To a time where there will be joy and celebration. No longer looking forward to a sacrifice, but looking forward to a meal with our Savior. 
because Christ will not return as the man of sorrows, but the Lord of joy. The lamb that was slain will not be sacrificed again, but will be the one worthy to take the scroll and open the seals. And when we take the cup, we are reminded how our lives are preserved, how our freedom has been granted to us, freedom from the dominion of sin, how our impossible current estate and future hope have been granted to us in Christ. And we are connected to that act of salvation by faith. We continue to read through this, we see Israel finally being able to participate in the Passover, and it moves next from the blood of the lamb forward to the bread. Another pretty significant symbol. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. Now the text is not uh, very specific whether they got those grains there, they took them from Jericho, or if they had brought them with them across the river from uh, the territory of Gad and Reuben and Manasseh. But it is clear that they got the food there. And this is the first time eating the produce of the land. Um, And this is a significant moment in the history because up until now, basically since these, this generation of Israel has been born in the wilderness, the only thing that they have ever eat, eaten has been manna, that thin, flaky bread that appeared every day miraculously, the bread from heaven and quail. This is their normal reality. But now they're, they're not just... Uh, given the gift directly from God, they are given the fulfillment of a promise of the land that they would be able to have something sustainable themselves, a place where they live and belong. It continues and says, And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Manna in and of itself is a spectacular miracle. Something beyond anything that any of us could really conceive of seeing in our, in our, in our own life. It is this bread that tasted of honey. It was thin and flaky like coriander bread. And it kept everyone alive. How lively do you think you would be if you'd only eaten Wonder Bread your entire life? No peanut butter or jelly, anything, just the bread. Probably not doing too well. But this bread gave them strength. It gave them life and nutrition. It gave them everything that they need. It was something that God provided perfectly for them. 
Now, part of that is because back then bread was a little bit different. It's not uh, kind of watered down. It was a staple that really kept you uh, kept you going. It was a core part of the diet, um, not as much like the mass-produced bread that we see today. But beyond that, even that bread needs supplementation. But what God gave them was enough to provide, to give them life from the cradle until 40 years later. And Christ is the true bread of heaven. He is not just like the manna that God gave in the wilderness. He is far better than the manna he gave in the wilderness. In John chapter 6, after he fed the crowd... They followed him, and they were asking him for a sign. Even after he had just fed them and multiplied the fish and the loaves, they are like, how about another sign? We really need another sign to know. And Christ directly compares himself to the manna that was given in the wilderness. He is, in fact, the true manna. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And further down he says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on that last day. Even further down, verses 47 to 51, just summarizing that, Christ shows that he is better than that manna that their forefathers received in the wilderness because they died. They ate it and died. That whole first generation died in the wilderness. And even this next generation that gets into the promised land of Canaan, they, they, they survived on that, but eventually they grow old and die. Some of them die in battle. They ate that bread, but their lives still end. That bread, that manna, did not carry them through to eternal life. But it gave them life, right? Because if they were walking through the wilderness and they didn't have that manna, they would be dead. The line of Abraham would have ended there. The bread of life is truly called the bread of life because without it, they would be dead. The line would have ended. It provided life. Yet Christ, being the true bread of life, does not just preserve life to an older age or to preserve life to continue a family line. It preserves life to eternity. He is the bread of life that really gives us a hope for a future home with God. Furthermore, it says that the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. It had served its purpose. It completed its job. The job was to get the people of Israel from Egypt to the promised land. It was a provisional bread 
to get them from here to there. It was miraculous. It brought life. But its end goal was to bring them to the place that God had promised. The end goal was what God had promised Abraham, that you will live in this land, that your seed would be like the stars of the sky, that you would be the father of many nations, that all families of the earth will be blessed through you, not that there will be bread on the ground every morning. That is a miraculous and glorious thing that God did for them, but the ultimate goal was to to fulfill the promise. This is similar to the early church. When we see all these signs and wonders and miracles, people are prophesying. They're speaking in tongues. They're laying hands on people and they're being healed. It is a normal part of life for them. They're seeing it day by day. Demons are being cast out. It's glorious and wonderful. And it fulfilled fulfilled its purpose. Christ gave us these signs and miracles to ratify who he was, the Christ, the Messiah, the the one and only Son of God. And he provided those gifts to his apostles and disciples to establish his church, to propagate his word throughout the world so that it would go from Jerusalem all the way out to the ends of the world. And once he has built his kingdom, the manna had served his purpose. The holy, miraculous gift of heaven had served his purpose. It was provisional. It was no longer needed. But the church is now established. And it survives on the word of God, the produce of the land. These words point us forward to Christ and show that he is better than food, better than money, better than gifts and powers of healing and prophecy. Because while those are all good things, they lead us to health and life and happiness. Christ is the ultimate reward and promise. Christ is our salvation through his body and blood. Christ is our sustenance and source of our spiritual life. Christ, in fact, is our life. It is only in union with him that we are alive. It is only by his life that we can live into eternity in paradise. Not just 40 years in a desert. Looking back, we see the significance in this passage of the Passover celebration being firmly established for his people, giving them the gift of that sign and seal that they would look back to their salvation, look forward to this promise that would be ultimately revealed in Christ. Seeing the end of the man and the beginning of the promised fruit of the Lamb. And now seeing this in light of what Christ has done and who Christ is. In all our reading 
of these texts and all our singing of these songs and all of our serving and work, our baptizing, our taking of his supper, and all of our days of eating and drinking and raising children and greeting friends and strangers in our living, in our dying, in our waking and our sleeping. May Christ be at the center. He is our strength and our hope. Because he's not only the center of this story that we read, he's the center of your and my story as well. So let us go to him in prayer. Christ, we pray that you would be lifted up in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. That we would be fully dependent upon you, upon the blood that you shed once for us, to be sustained by your holy will, your presence, through your Holy Spirit. We pray that we would be moved to true worship, that we would be invigorated by your grace to speak to others who need to hear your name. Grow us in your love and feed our faith. In Christ's name, amen.